Well, if you have your Bibles with you uh, this morning, I will not ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians, but I will ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. This morning we will be considering verses 1 through 17. 1 through 17. Hear now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant and infallible Word of God written for you and for me today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Sarah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amimadab, Amimadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begot Abuid, and Abuid begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azer. Eliezer begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer, and Eliezer begot Mothan, and Mothan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would work mightily in and through it as we consider it this morning in our hearts. Give us great joy in receiving it, for it is from you to us today. This is the word that we need to hear that needs to be applied in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray for your work and your blessing. In Christ's name, amen. 
Well, beloved in Christ, this morning we begin a new preaching series through the Gospel of Matthew. And I believe it's good for us as a body to consider at this point in time the life and ministry of Christ in detail. Matthew provides us a wonderful picture and view of that as his gospel opens the New Testament. And as this is true, it's good to understand the context of where Matthew falls in biblical revelation and time. If you recall, after creation, the fall, the establishing of the covenant of grace, the giving of the law to set apart, to order, to guide and restrain sin in the hearts and lives of God's people, after the time of the judges and many Old Testament kings of what would become the divided kingdoms, after words of the pre-exilic and the exilic and the post-exilic prophets to the people, as the history of the Old Testament came to a close, the Hebrews were chastened, judged, and divided by the Lord for their grievous sins. And this period, after the close of God's revelation to his people in the Old Testament, is referred to as the intertestamental period. Now, by way of a brief history that sets the stage, let's dive into what happened then as we approach Matthew. I think it's good and helpful in setting this context. Many Jews returned from exile and were worshiping in Jerusalem, while others stayed in Persia, and still others in Egypt and elsewhere. Now, the scattering of the people is known as the Diaspora. And during this time, though God was silent, the people continued to walk by faith in hope that God would fulfill his covenantal promises to Abraham and to David. They had expectant hope for the coming Messiah. Now, the time between God's revelation through the prophet Malachi and the first chapter of Matthew was about 400 years. And that's about four generations of time and life in the midst of the influence of the surrounding cultures. Think of that. Sometimes we, we make that mark in our mind. Yeah, the intertestamental period. I've, I've heard about that a little bit. 400 years. Got it. Think about it. Four generations. Four generations. And that time in life in the midst of where they had been dispersed and all of these influencing cultures. The Persians gave way to Alexander the Great through his conquests. Kids, have you heard of Alexander the Great? Many of you have in history lessons, right? He instituted Greek culture or Hellenism in places that he conquered, and that spread through much of the Middle East. Now, after Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C., Palestine came under the rule of one of Alexander's generals, Ptolemy. He also ruled over Egypt. The Jewish colony in Egypt thrived under the Ptolemies. And Seleucus was another general that ruled an empire from the west coast of Asia Minor, or present-day Turkey, to beyond Babylon. And they challenged the Ptolemies. 
And Antiochus III eventually occupied Palestine, and then Antiochus' desecration of the Jewish temple led to the Maccabean, the Maccabean Revolt. And the Jews occupied Jerusalem once again in 164 B.C. Now, Jonathan Maccabeus took over the, high, the office of high priest, even though he didn't belong to the, the proper family line. He wasn't a Levite. And this led to an internal split. And the Essene community believed that they were the true Israel. And the Hasmonean rulers dominated the priesthood and then progressively adopted a Greek way of life. They supported and were supported by the Sadducees, which we hear in the Gospels, don't we? Many of you may be familiar with them, at least by name. They were supported by the Sadducees, who wanted political stability. But they were opposed by the Pharisees, who sought to maintain the regulations of Judaism. And eventually, the Hasmoneans fell apart from the inside. And they couldn't withstand the advance of the Romans. And in 63 BC, General Pompey occupied Jerusalem. And then the Romans made Herod the Great king of Judea. And so here we come to Matthew's time. This is the backdrop that Matthew writes from. And in Matthew, we find divine revelation coming to his people. Not through more prophets, but wonderfully through the chief prophet, his son, Jesus Christ. And as we consider Matthew's gospel, the question you may be considering is, why do we have three other gospels in addition to Matthew's? Well, that's a good question. Each of the Gospels are filling in the picture of who Jesus is. We need to see that. When you consider all four Gospels, you can see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke provide a synopsis of the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus as the Christ, God's promised Messiah, as he is Emmanuel, God with us. And these three Gospels are the testimony of three apostolic witnesses to Jesus, to his unique person and the events that secured our redemption. And therefore, they're referred to as the synoptic Gospels. John, however, doesn't provide a synopsis of Christ's life and work. But rather, he gives selective highlights of the defining elements of who Jesus is and what set him apart as the Christ, the Son of God. That was his main message, to show Jesus to be the Son of God. We see that from chapter 1, verse 1 to the end. And so know that these Gospels don't compete with each other, but they are indeed complementary with each other. Again, filling in the different parts of the picture to paint this grand portrait of who Jesus is and his life and ministry. But this morning, let's consider our text under three headings here in Matthew 1. First, an introduction to Matthew, the author. And second, the genealogy of Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 16, as well as then the 
three stages of 14 generations, pre-exilic and post-exilic, that he organizes in verse 17. So let's begin with the authorship. The authorship, or excuse me, the author of this gospel is Matthew, a disciple of Christ. Matthew is referenced five times in the scriptures. Matthew 9.9, Matthew 10.3, Mark 3.18, Luke 6.15, and Acts 1.13 all mention him. Now, though Matthew doesn't identify himself as the author in this gospel, long-standing tradition has held that he is indeed the author. And in fact, his authorship really wasn't questioned until the 18th century. So not that long ago. And know that Matthew's name was Levi, and he was a tax collector prior to, call, prior to Christ calling him to be his disciple. In fact, we find Jesus' call of him in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Turn with me there if you would. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. We read there, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Ouch. Right? Take note that tax collectors weren't well thought of, and they weren't appreciated members of society. And we could all say that that really hasn't changed today much, has it? But again, see how Jesus came to the unexpected. And this is important, even as we consider Matthew, we're going to see it again in our text today and even beyond in the weeks to come. Jesus came to the unexpected, to the undesirable, to the despised, and he called them to serve him. He called them to love and to walk with and to learn from him as his disciples, as learners, as students of the living Christ. And this also then should remind us of the Apostle Paul's words in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26, if you remember there, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Beloved, see how much of this was true in Jesus' calling of Matthew, especially 
considering the response of the Pharisees. And so where does God begin through Matthew? Where does he begin in declaring the good news of Christ? He begins with a genealogy. Now, some of you may wonder as you're sitting here, and so pastor uh, is going to preach through Matthew. Is he going to skip the genealogy or is he going to preach it? Well, you know it now, but I'm going to preach it. Because it's a blessed and important portion of Scripture. This is the inspired Word of God that is for you and for me today. And so let's joy in it and glean from it. But a good question is, why does Matthew begin with a genealogy? As here now, the Lord of creation is bringing revelation to his people. Christ is come. Why does he begin with a genealogy? We could ask the same question regarding Luke, right? Luke doesn't begin with a genealogy, but it's very early in Luke's gospel. Genealogies of Christ are in Matthew and Luke only of the four. But why Matthew? Matthew intentionally begins with one to show the marvelous connection that Jesus is the anointed one, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And know that Messiah represents the Hebrew word for anointed, as we find in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, where we read there, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces from heaven. He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In Psalm 2.2, Messianic Psalm, pointing us to Christ, really as all of them do, but wonderfully in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. They wanted nothing to do with David or his rule or Christ and his for sure. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed of God. We're going to see that. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, again, prophetically, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Beloved, Matthew's gospel continues the divine promise of salvation revealed in the Old Testament and is, most appropriately, our doorway into the New Testament. And further, it's more than a continuation of the story. It's much more than that. It's its fulfillment in Christ. Praise the Lord. We'll be blessed in the coming weeks as Matthew points out ten times that what happened in the life of Jesus is the fulfillment of what the prophets spoke of. He is the fulfillment of covenantal promises. And we see this at the outset in Matthew's genealogy. It's wonderful. You're like, man, pastor's too excited about a genealogy. Yeah, 
hope you are too. But look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. My friends, when we consider time and place and people and culture, we understand that one's genealogy is one's identity. Who you are is who you are the son of. Especially here in biblical times, we see that as well. And so Matthew's fir- Matthew first identifies Jesus to be what? The son of Abraham. Which means that he's the seed of Abraham, which takes us back to Genesis 12 and 13 and God's covenant with Abraham. Jesus is the culmination of God's promise that all the nations would be blessed through him. Matthew also says that Jesus is the son of David, which takes us back to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Christ is the heir of the seed of David, who sits and will sit on David's throne forever as king. In fact, Christ came to be the mediator of the new covenant. The writer to the Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews 9.15. And so these two markers in being the son of both David and Abraham are incredibly important. Incredibly important for the audience that Matthew wrote to more directly. Incredibly important for the church today. They not only kick off the book, but they communicate the structure of the genealogy as you look at verses 2 through 16. And as you do so in those verses, we're going to find three divisions there. One, proof that Jesus is the son of Abraham as Matthew identifies the line between Abraham and David in verses 2 through 6a. Secondly, proof that Jesus is the son of David, as Matthew provides the line from David to the captivity in Babylon in verses 6b through 11. And finally, thirdly, the time of the captivity to the birth of Christ, verses 12 through 16. Now, beginning in verse 2, Matthew goes on to show his Jewish audience the the connection between Jesus and the patriarchs. Notice. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He starts off there. But it's also interesting, especially in comparison to Luke's genealogy, that in Matthew's we find women included, which was unusual for the Near Eastern genealogies. And why are they included here? They're included here because they were integral in God's purpose in sending Christ. And notice that like Matthew, we're going to see that each of these women demonstrate God's choosing of the unlikely, of the unexpected. They weren't high and mighty. They weren't prominent. But God chose them. God chose them to bear and be in the line and to propagate the line that would lead to Christ. And the first that we find is Tamar, the wife of Judah in verse 3. In Genesis chapter 38, Tamar reminds us of Judah's failures as he had an illicit affair with her that led to the birth of Perez and Zerah, who were twins. Hezron 
also mentioned in that verse, was the leader of his family, the Hezronites. And we find them in Numbers chapter 26. In verse 4, notice Boaz was born of Rahab, the harlot, through her relations with Salmon. You can see more about Rahab and Joshua too. And if you recall, she and her family were the only ones saved when Jericho fell. In verse 5, Obed was born of Ruth the Moabitess in her relationship with Boaz as he redeemed her. He was her kinsman redeemer. We see this in Ruth 4. Even at the end of Ruth, in Ruth 4, we find a brief genealogy of Perez going to David. In verse 6a, Obed then was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Now, let's pause here for a second and consider that we find God's promise in his words to Samuel regarding Jesse and his line. Even in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, there we read, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. For your ho- fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Notice. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Again, we, we've considered this in the Psalms, beloved. If you've been in our evening service, the Lord raises up kings and he brings kings down. The Lord appoints his kings. Here he says, I provided myself a king among his sons. And notice that David is the only one in the line thus far in Matthew's genealogy. A line that has many kings listed. He is the only one that is named with his title. And that's going to be important in a moment. As we look on in Matthew 1, 6b, David, in his sinful relationship with Bathsheba, bore Solomon. Bathsheba would prove to be David's downfall. We see this in 2 Samuel 11. And as we know, Solomon was blessed by God with great wisdom. He had many possessions. However, he too fell into much sin and was a recipient of God's displeasure and chastening, which would then eventually, as God granted grace in time, would lead to his restoration. But we see his journey, we see his battle, and even at the tail end, his restoration in the book of Ecclesiastes. I commend that to you if you'd like to learn more about that. But observe observe this regarding the kings listed in verses 7 and 8, because This is really what we find, and as we look at 6b and and into David's line up until the captivity, what do we find? We find a list of kings, really, and that's important, a list of kings. And observe this, there is a mixture of good and wicked kings in verses 7 and 8. Wicked Rehoboam begot wicked Abijah, and wicked Abijah begot good Asa. Good Asa begot good Jehoshaphat. Good Jehoshaphat begot wicked Joram. 
And in verse 9, Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah were good and godly kings, though Ahaz was not. Notice here, beloved, that neither grace nor reigning sin are in the bloodline, but God grants grace and withholds grace as he pleases. His will and work is never thwarted by those who rebel against him. Even though there was this mixture of wicked kings in this line, this line would still culminate in the birth of Christ. In verse 11, Jeconiah was the king who was dethroned by Nebuchadnezzar, and the people were taken into captivity. And in verse 12, Zerubbabel was the man God used to lead the Jews back from Babylon in 520 BC. He then governed Judah and he rebuilt the temple. See here how God didn't allow the line of Abraham and David to end until the Son of God was born of the Virgin Mary. He preserved that line. He kept his covenant promise. He fulfilled it. We see that in verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the son of, uh, excuse me, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Love and know that Mary was of the same tribe and family with Joseph, so that both by his mother and by his supposed father, we know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit not by a physical relationship between Joseph and Mary, but by his supposed father, he was of the house of David. And so this genealogy ends with Jesus. And note this, he's the only other besides David to bear a title. He is called Christ. He is called Christ. He is the promised anointed. From the very beginning of Matthew. Matthew says it. He, he declares it. He shows it. Through line and lineage. He is the promised anointed. He is the promised Messiah. The, the promised seed of Abraham. The, the promised son of David. Who is his greater son. And is the king of kings forever. Indeed, let him who has ears to hear this hear it and rejoice. But then notice verse 17. Matthew says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Beloved, why does Matthew give us these three divisions of 14? We'll see two things here. One, the symmetry here shows us that the history of the Israelites was evidence of God's faithful, providential care of his people. But secondly, also see that in the first 14, we have the family of David rising from rags to riches, so to speak. And in the second 14, we see it flourishing in general. And in the third, what do we find? As they were in captivity, we find it declining and dwindling into the family of a poor carpenter. 
But then, but then Christ shines forth out of it the glory of his people, Israel. The consolation of Israel. The Savior has come. The promised Messiah, he's here. And so I encourage you, beloved, see the importance and the great benefit that the genealogies in the Scripture provide and are given for, especially this one here in Matthew. Matthew was likely excited as he wrote about it. I mean, name after name, listing, yes, praise the Lord. Yes, see here, he begot him, and he begot him, and here's Christ. For God gives this to us to show us the covenantal connection in the Scriptures along with his covenant faithfulness in sending Christ, as he is truly the fulfillment of those promises. But I also encourage you to spend more time studying this genealogy this coming week. And why? Look up those that Matthew includes in the line. And glean from the things that God reveals to us about them. And be blessed in seeing God's grace, his wisdom, his providential plan and work, his direction of the line of Christ. And by the grace of God, may this genealogy strengthen your faith and deepen your love and enliven your praise of Jesus today. That you too, as you sit here and you proclaim and you agree with, and you believe that He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the Savior of His people, the mediator of the new covenant. You believe all of that is true, but here is proof that it is true, even in a line, even in a genealogy. God providentially, consistently, faithfully shows us that Jesus is the one. Praise God for his word. Let's pray together.